This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Oh, this is another episode of Play by Playcast. Thanks as always for the subscribe, the stream, the download, however you're listening to us here on a Friday morning. My name is Joel Godet, and this is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters. Hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. If you want to contact the pod, you can always do that on Twitter, at PXPCast. You can hit me up at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Or you can find me via email, which a couple people did in the last week. Uh, always good to hear from some folks. J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U for Ball State University at B-S-U dot E-D-U. Back from vacation officially. Like literally as I'm recording this 15 minutes ago. Walked in the door, checked the mail, mostly bills, a couple of coupons to Kohl's. Uh, I did get a credit from The Gap, so that was cool. Um, made some dinner. It's 1040. Still made some dinner. Uh, I mean, like I, you're, it's tough when you fly at like weird times. Like You don't know which airport to eat in. Like I can't eat at 3, but I don't want to eat at 7.30. And I, I don't have... Anyway, I wound up eating dinner late. Uh, walked in the door, uh, checked the mail. Threw the laundry in. That's doing. Uh, Now I'm here doing the podcast to make sure that we are here with you on time on a Friday morning. Uh, Good trip, though. If you ever, like, it was a long one. I think it wound up being like 11 or 12 days. Started at Mount Rushmore. Went to Custer State Park in South Dakota. uh, Made our way up past Devil's Tower National Monument. uh, Out to Yellowstone National Park. Uh, from Yellowstone, went to Missoula, where I caught a Missoula Ospreys game. So even when I'm on vacation, I still go to sports. Like, it's still there. Caught up with Mick Tidrow, voice of the Ospreys, who was uh, a Ball State grad and uh, Ball State grad student coming back to work with uh, the Ball State Sports Link program uh, this coming year. But he's their broadcaster, so chatted with Mick. He gave me some second-row seats. That was cool. Sat right behind home plate. My first Pioneer League game, so I can check another league off. Uh, of the stadium slash minor league tour list. Cool stadium. Cool backdrop, like mountains in the outfield. Like the Montana mountains. It's just gorgeous. And their mascot is Ollie the Osprey. Kind of cool. Is it Osprey or Osprey? I don't know. Uh, But so I did that and then went up to Glacier National Park. And if you ever have a chance to go to a national park, go to Glacier. It is beautiful. And it's cold Like at night, it's in the 40s, but during the day, it's in the 80s, but it's not a hot 80s because there's literally 35 degree water around you, and the breeze is just fantastic. I jumped in the water. I went whitewater rafting, jumped in the water. Uh, They told me you had five minutes before you got hypothermia, so I got out of the water pretty quickly. Um, Saw some mountain goats. Uh, There were bear, didn't see any. Uh, There were moose, didn't see any. I uh, did see some ground squirrels. Those were cool. And some bighorn sheep. Uh, but, I mean, just a breathtaking, gorgeous trip. And then I get home tonight. Tomorrow I'm back in the office. Two weeks from now in Madison, Wisconsin for the CrossFit Games. Uh, when I get back from the CrossFit Games, it's fall football training camp. And then we are in full swing. So the off season is over. And it is July 13th. That was a quick summer. Uh, but we're right back in the thick of things. And uh, with that, we'll get to today's guest. Mike Curto is the voice of the Tacoma Rainiers, and he joins us this week on PXPCast. And he's been in Tacoma, one of the more respected broadcasters in minor league baseball since 1999. Uh, before the Rainiers, 
He was with the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes in the California League. He was with the Bend, Oregon Bandits of the Western League and the Lafayette Leopards of the Great Central League. And if you're saying to yourself, who are the Lafayette Leopards and what is the Great Central League? Neither exists anymore, and this story involves a strip club owner paying players out of the back of his truck. We will get into it. It's quite entertaining. Um, so uh, he's got the, the kind of typical minor league town story to get to where he is uh, as a really respected voice in AAA. Uh, And with that has come some time in the major leagues as well. So we'll talk about Mike's rise in broadcasting, his tips and tricks for calling baseball successfully, uh, and what it's like to broadcast games at the major league level. Um, So we'll get into all of that this week with Mike Curdo here on PXPCast. Uh, I uh, decided I wanted to be a broadcaster pretty early in life. Um, I love baseball and I wasn't very good at playing it. And, uh, I always listened to games when I was a kid. I listened to uh, Hank Greenwald called San Francisco Giants games and became a diehard fan and loved listening to the games on the radio and always thought that that would be something that would be fun to do, to be the broadcaster on the radio and calling the games. And you get to go to all the Giants games if you're the Giants announcer. You know, it just seemed like this, like, dream when I was a kid. So by the time I got out of high school, um, I'd gotten into Cal, and I knew that they had a student radio station, so I went and uh, signed up at the student radio station prior to even attending my first class. I just went and volunteered there, and they have a great sports program where they still, uh, to this day, do most of the college, most of the Cal baseball games, and that's the only place to get them because uh, Cal baseball doesn't have a commercial radio station uh, airing the game, so uh, and then this is you know, 25 years ago, but I could, uh, I went in there and, uh, worked hard to become a sports broadcaster through the program that they had at the college radio station. And it, while it was affiliated with the school and financed by the school, there was no, like, uh, you couldn't major in sports broadcasting that was not available at that, t- at that time. You couldn't even major in journalism at Berkeley. That was not an offered degree. So, uh, yeah, There's something I, kind I, of I ironic up- about that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I ended up uh, majoring in English because I like reading, and uh, so yeah, that was good. But uh, but really, what I focused on all my time in college and spent more time on than academics was actually uh, radio broadcasting and my work at the student radio station. Uh, I this is going to be counterintuitive to what you literally just said, but uh, if I can approach the the fact that you majored in English and literature too, uh, even though that you spent more time at the radio station. Um, like we, we had Dave Fleming on this podcast. He talked about when he majored in the classics at Stanford um, and just being able to be as well-rounded as possible. And I guess this goes into the fact that you like reading too. Uh, how much do you think that just kind of having a broader interest and, a, and, and uh, particularly in that side of things uh, of academia helps you as a broadcaster uh, throughout your career and now today? Well, I think the the biggest thing you get out of uh, being an avid reader, which I am, is it, it improves your vocabulary. You see see more words, <laughs> so uh, yeah. uh, and you, you see uh, and you know as you're reading, there's uh, phrases and you know there's a, it it definitely increases your vocabulary and you know that really helps in terms of being a broadcaster. But in terms of the bigger picture, being well-rounded is uh, is huge when you're a play-by-play announcer, especially in baseball where you're talking to the fans every day. Um, having interests outside of uh, just baseball and, and broadcasting is very important, uh, I think, in a lot of different ways. Um, first up, so you don't drive yourself crazy thinking about baseball all the time. Sure. But uh, also because you need to uh, you need to occasionally, uh, uh, even on the air, be aware of what's going on in the world around you outside of what's uh, happening on the baseball field. It's you know it's different than than basketball where the action is just nonstop right in front of you and there's no time to breathe. You know in baseball there's there's a lot of things going on and uh, but also a lot of dead time and uh, time where you know it's it's important to have a wider range of knowledge at times. What about Hank Greenwald? Had you infatuated at a young age? The dry sense of humor. He had a tremendous uh, dry sense of humor, dry wit, and would uh, get off these one-liners that, like, sometimes you had to think about for a second, and then you realize, hey, that's pretty funny. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I just loved the dry wit that he had, and uh, he had a unique style as a broadcaster that uh, I guess has kind of rubbed off on me, in that uh, he was. Uh, 
kind of, uh, well, he was really good at pacing of the game, which is a really important skill that I guess for all announcers. But uh, he also, uh, in addition to the dry sense of humor, was not super excitable, but didn't get down a whole lot either. So uh, he had uh, a very even tone through the game. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I had read where you've said that before, too, uh, just in terms of what you like about that and, and why you think it works. Well, uh, I've I've kind of changed my tune on it a bit, and that happened when I moved to, when I got this job in, in Tacoma, which is in the Seattle market. Um, but uh, when I when I was getting into broadcasting, and you know was in college and was having you know older students teach younger students how to do play by play, one of the things that one of the the seniors at the time told me was to you know when something exciting happens, don't speed up, but let your voice. Uh, uh, inflection show the excitement instead of like starting to talk faster. And uh, I think uh, Hank Greenwald was uh, one of the guys who uh, definitely uh, followed that, uh, that kind of rule up that I'm guessing the student who taught me that listened to Hank a lot as well. <laughs> so, uh, because that was one of the things he did. But then when I moved to uh, Tacoma, I got this AAA job and it was 20 years ago. And, you know, we're the Mariners AAA team and they're, announcer uh and hall of famer dave niehaus beloved here uh was a really excitable announcer like when when something positive happened for the mariners he would just go nuts and that's what the fans here were used to and accustomed to and loved so i had to uh change my approach a little bit and start to get more excited and uh, a little more uh, uh not not extremely uh, crazy when something good happened for the Rainiers, but I definitely had to throw a little more excitement and energy into it than I'd been used to doing because that's what the fans here like. How long did it take you to feel comfortable with that? Oh, uh, probably a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't my thing, <laughs> but, but that's, you know, that's a, uh, that in the area here, that's uh that, that's what the, the, the fans are used to. Do you like how it sounds now? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, you know, Dave, uh, Dave was broadcasting a lot of games for really bad Mariners teams. And, uh, they had to, the, you know, he was their first announcer in 1977 as an expansion team and, uh, making it sound exciting was probably his number one priority. You know, they had to get, (laughs) they had to fill the seats. The team was bad and, uh, making, uh, a bad team sound exciting was just uh, crucial there uh, for a long time, for nearly 20 years before they started to win games. So uh, I totally get it. I mean, you had to, you had to break out the rye bread and mustard. Otherwise, (laughs) exactly. That was my, like Ken Griffey Jr. Slug Fest on, on Nintendo was like my first exposure. I think when I really thought about it to broadcasting, like the the breakout, the rye bread and mustard was always on there. So it's, it still (laughs) sticks with me to this day. It's a classic Hall of Fame call. <laughs> um, take me back, though, before we, uh, we got to that. And I want to go back to, to the beginning when you got out of college and got into this professionally. I know it took you some time, a couple of years after college, uh, to get a break into broadcasting. Uh, what did you do in those couple of years? And um, how did you hang on to that goal and that dream of getting to where uh, you eventually got? Um, yeah, that was an interesting time. Uh, in I graduated from college in uh, December of 1992, and I thought I was going to get a uh, a full season, you know, a play by play job right out of school, no problem in the minor leagues, you know. And I I didn't even apply to the short season teams because I was cocky and young and dumb, <laughs> and so I'm like, I'll get a full season A ball job, no trouble. And uh, I didn't, <laughs> so uh, that. Uh, that was kind of a bummer, um, but I did continue to uh, participate in Cal Student Radio as a graduate, you know, volunteer. Mm. And in 1992, they, Cal made the College World Series and went to Omaha and lost two one-run games and went home. But uh, I did get to call those two games, so I had uh, that's pretty good tape at that point. Uh, you know, a couple College World Series games with the big crowds in the background. The student radio station, KALX, uh, in Berkeley had a deal with the Oakland A's where they would do a couple of major league uh, midweek spring training games each year because uh, the A's spring training games at that time were only aired on the weekend. So we would go to down to Arizona and do a couple of games. So I had uh, 
major league spring training games uh, on tape. So I, you know, I, I had some good stuff and uh, I mean, considering I was 22 years old, but <laughs> I had good stuff for a 22 year old. And uh, I, I sent it out to all the teams back then. There was no internet for your job searching. Uh, you had to actually get on the phone and call all these minor league teams. So uh did that and find, found a few openings and sent off some stuff and uh, didn't really get anywhere. I needed a job. So uh, I saw that the uh, San Francisco Giants were hiring uh, part-time uh, ticket sales people. And it was the, uh, the winter of 92 to 93 when uh, I got hired to do that. And actually, hmm, I might have my ears wrong. It might have been 92. It was the first year they signed Barry Bonds. So uh, Barry Bonds was coming in, and suddenly they had uh, tickets. Uh, they they suddenly had a, a surge of ticket sales. So uh, they needed people to take orders. And uh, this was, uh, I just looked it up, 93. All right, so it was uh, the winter of 93, 92 to the 93 uh, baseball season. I got a part-time job answering phones in the Giants ticket office. It paid an hourly rate, uh, an hourly rate. I think it was ten bucks an hour, and uh, just sat there taking calls, writing down credit card numbers, and the sales uh, for the Giants' uh, tickets started to go through the roof. They, it was a part-time job that was going to end on opening day, but sales were so strong they kept extending us and extending us. There was a group of us, and I ended up doing that for the entire '93 season and. Uh, up towards the beginning of the 94 season. In 93, the Giants won 100 games and missed the playoffs because uh, there was no wild card then. Uh, they'd get beat up by Atlanta. Um, but uh, anyway, that was my uh, – at least I was around baseball, right? I was in the ticket office with uh, 25 other people. Sure, you're just taking phone calls and writing down credit card numbers and selling tickets. But at least it was in baseball, and you could go out and watch the game uh, after work every day. And the Giants were winning, and it was fun. Uh, in the meantime, I was looking for a broadcasting job and still doing the occasional Cal game uh, on student radio there when they needed somebody. Uh, I had gone to some uh, some baseball gatherings, if you will. I had been to the winter meetings once and uh, didn't uh, really find that to be very helpful at that time. But uh, I had also gone to a promotional seminar, which they used to have every year in El Paso, Texas, that uh, basically uh, was a much, much smaller version of the minor league side of the winter meetings where teams would send one or two people to this promotional seminar. But for a lot of the A-ball teams, it would be the general manager who would be the guy hiring the radio announcer if they had an opening. So you had all these A-ball general managers along with other people from higher-level teams talking about marketing uh, ideas in the middle of the winter and uh, it was a good place to do some networking that was away from the the huge winter meetings uh, minor league uh, side of things, which is just a sea of people. And I had been tipped off to this by a friend that uh, it was a good way to, to meet some people and get a foot in the door. And I actually uh, met another job seeker at this event in El Paso, Texas, who was trying to get uh, a management position with a minor league team. He wanted to be a minor league general manager. He was a little older. He'd come out of the restaurant business, and uh, he wanted to to be a GM of a minor league team. It was his goal, and uh, neither of us got jobs at it, but we did spend a lot of time sitting at the hotel bar with one another. <laughs> and uh, two years later, he calls me out of the blue and says, hey, uh, I just got named uh, general manager of an independent league team in Lafayette, Indiana, and I'm hoping to sign a radio deal. And when I do, I want you to be my announcer. And I said, all right, I'm in. <laughs> so uh, that was pretty much the extent of it. Uh, three weeks later, he called back and said, I got a radio deal. Let's go. And I quit the Giants and moved to Lafayette, Indiana, and started the play-by-play career. I heard that uh, the season didn't end uh, the way it should have, though, in that league. Did it not? <laughs> it did not end well. <laughs> I-, I don't think it ended, actually. <laughs> Oh, it ended. <laughs> the, uh, the 1994 Great Central League would be uh, a, a good subject for a fantastic book that would only be read by about 500 people, but they would really enjoy it. Uh, a four-team independent league started by one guy who had made his money running a bunch of gentlemen's clubs, and uh, he decided he wanted to start an independent baseball league because he heard that this uh, was a good way to make some money. 
and he started four teams uh, in the Midwest and got the whole thing off the ground in like January with games starting in May. He was trying to start a league where he owned all four teams and trying to start it in just a couple of months prior to opening day in four different cities. And it got off the ground and games were being played and uh, did not take long for players to stop getting paid. Um, Somewhere around late July, early August, uh, uh, the GM who hired me quit. Uh, the manager of our team just decided to keep, you know, the, the, the league owner decided to keep him, uh, you know, they, they wanted to keep playing the game. So the manager of our team was basically running everything with no front office. And he told me to go home. We don't need radio anymore. We're just, and he, he was, he was great about it. He's a long, now a long time baseball man, but uh, he, uh, he said, you know, look, we're just hoping to make it to the end of the season playing games and we're no longer taking any expenses. So, uh, <laughs> So he sent me home, and the games weren't on the radio anymore. I feel fortunate I got out of there without being owed any money. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it was like uh, it was early August, and I just drove home. <laughs> but I got about fifty games under my belt, so that was good. People were being and, paid out of the back of a truck in cash. Is that true? That happened once on a road trip. Yeah, you did your research. There was a road because I've talked about this like one other time. There was a road trip where uh, no one had gotten paychecks, including all the players. And I'm on the road with a team, and we were somewhere in Iowa, and the league president showed up, opened up his trunk, and paid all the players in cash. In singles, uh, probably. Like, yeah, it, well, <laughs> <laughs> he did have some larger denominations. But uh, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was the payments were like this. Well, you get 1200 a month, so this is for two weeks, so that's 600 And let's assume they take out 100 for taxes, so here's 500 <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was the payoff. That was the pay. And of course, everyone took it because everyone was worried that they weren't going to get any money. So this was at least money. Let's take it. <laughs> so are you thinking at that point, like, uh, this is great. I've got 50 games under my belt. I'm going to go out and conquer the rest of the world. Now are you thinking like, oh, my God, I just worked for a team that doesn't exist. Now what do I do? Um, I had some really mixed uh, opinions on that whole thing. Uh, it was terrible how it ended, but I was. I was uh, young. I was 24. Uh, I had seen the world. I had learned a lot about baseball uh, on our team. There were guys who had played organized ball and been released out of like A ball and double A on our team. So um, that, uh, you know, talking to some of those guys and hearing their experiences kind of helped, uh, helped me realize that I didn't want to stop doing it. And uh, also helped me realize that the situation that we had been through there in uh, in the Great Central League was not uh, comparable to other situations in minor league baseball. But I did have to go home after that and uh, move in with mom again, <laughs> so that was discouraging. Uh, but uh, it uh, but I definitely still uh, had desire at that point. And, you know, getting the games in and getting the broadcast every day. And our the GM I worked for, the guy who hired me, was really respectful of radio broadcasters. He he would have liked to have done it himself, uh, but, you know, knew that that wasn't his talent. And he listened to all the games and he gave me tips. And uh, until the league broke up, it was actually a lot of fun uh, uh, talking to him and, and getting, you know, and getting his feedback on the broadcast and all that. And I learned a lot during that year. So, it ended up having a lot of positives despite the negative ending. That's something you don't see probably a ton in minor league baseball today anymore, too, is it? Or, I mean, if you wind um, up in the right spot, you, I'm sure you probably do. Yeah, the uh, uh, in terms of the uh, – are you asking about in terms of getting the feedback and the – Feedback and investment and those types of things. Um, yeah, I think it goes uh, – it depends on where you are, really. Uh, where I am now in Tacoma, our team president, who I have a great relationship with, and he treats me and my position very well, but he doesn't sit and listen to every game. Uh, so he, you know, he doesn't uh, offer me a lot of broadcast tips or complaints, for that matter. Uh, so uh, I consider that kind of a good thing now. Um, you know, it'd be nice to get some feedback every now and then, and sometimes, sometimes I do uh, from you know friends who listen to the games and all that. But uh, I don't have, like, professional feedback coming to me 
from a fellow broadcaster now uh, Now that I'm in the tri- at the AAA level. All right, we'll get you back to Mike Curdo in just a minute, but I want to take a second to tell you about Audible.com. Listen, so we all know I've been on vacation the last couple of weeks, and I found out actually in Montana over the last few days um, when I went back to my cabin at night at like, you know, 9.30, 10 o'clock, when I'm not tired, I can actually read books without falling asleep. I love to read, but my thing is like when I read books, I always fall asleep. I will lay down on my couch with a book, get two pages in, bam, I'm out. I've made no progress in the book. I'm fully dressed from the day. I wake up at 3 a.m. The lights are on. I don't get a good night's sleep. It's a bad situation. But I found out in Montana, like, if I'm actually not obnoxiously tired, I can, I can do some digging and get some, get some reading done in, in, like, some actual books. However... If I'm tired and I still want to read, good solution, audible.com. And if you go to audibletrial.com slash pxpcast today, you'll get a free audiobook if you sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible. They have over 180,000 book titles that you can download right to your device that you're probably listening to this podcast on right now. And when you're done listening to Play by Playcast, you can flip over to an audiobook that you got for free from audible.com. Titles like The Help. Titles like Dan Brown's Inferno or Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, book one by George R.R. R. Martin. Not my thing, but like Game of Thrones, pretty popular. Uh, I'm a big mystery guy. They have a ton of Harlan Coben titles. They've got Bossy Pants, the Tina Fey book. Tons of different things spanning tons of different topics and tons of different tums, tons, tons of different uh, time periods and uh, eras in which these books were written. So go to audibletrial.com slash pxpcast, sign up for a free 30-day free trial, and get a free audiobook just for doing so, and help the podcast out a little bit as well. It's audibletrial.com slash pxpcast. Now, back to Mike Curdo. Let's fast forward from uh, getting paid out of the back of a truck to the first time you walked into a big league ballpark. Um, what did you think? Was it 2003, the very first yeah. time? I believe it was 2003, if you're talking about broadcasting a game in a major league park, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the, uh, it was during the waning days of the Montreal Expos. Uh, I'm one of a lot of announcers who had a chance to do this, but Montreal was a lame duck team there for a couple of years. Everybody knew they were moving to uh, D.C. to become the Nationals, and uh, they were... Uh, I guess they were running a pretty slim budget, and uh, they had uh, one broadcaster who uh, would uh, travel with them for English-speaking radio. And this is important to remember for the Montreal Expos, the English radio was the second language, okay? The the French radio was their number one broadcast priority. That's what most of the people speak in Montreal. So English was like the Spanish broadcaster for, say, (laughs) the Mariners, all right? So, uh, so yeah, so they, they only traveled one uh, English-speaking radio announcer. And he, for the final two years of the Expos, uh, Elliot was his name, he would uh, just call up people, broadcasters from AAA uh, and maybe AA teams near where the Expos were going. He put out word that he was looking for guys to help him. They, you weren't going to get paid, but you would get to call some major league innings. And... Uh, I signed up for that because I'd had not, I'd not had any sort of breakthrough uh, trying to get to the big leagues at that point, and so I'm sure I'm like sure I'll do it. <laughs> so I did yeah. a three game series, interleague series, Expos at Mariners in 2003, and another one in 2004. And that first time walking in there, I remember it. There's a I remember being so nervous, and uh, I kind of laugh at it now. I mean, this is the number two language broadcast in Montreal. <laughs> I mean, there really wasn't uh, who's listening to this. I don't know. And I'm only going to do a couple of innings. <laughs> so I'm like, why was I so nervous back then? But man, I was really nervous. And uh, you could hear it on the tapes, especially the first game. <laughs> so uh, uh, that, that was a, that was a heck of an experience. And then the next year when I did it, it was much better. I was calm and uh, ready for it. And the, the, uh, the audio came out much better. I was much happier with the whole experience. But uh, it, it was fun being at Safeco Field, and this was uh, when the Mariners were still good. Um, but, you know, I'm calling the team for – I'm calling it on the Expos <laughs> English flagship, so I couldn't get excited about Mariners stuff. But they, it was fun just being there. Ichiro was in his prime, and 
it was a blast. Do you uh, what do you remember, or do you remember anything about the 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 first game you did, or the the first inning you called, and and what that that jolt is like? Wow, I don't uh, I don't really specifically recall that first inning. Uh, I I just well I remember just telling myself like telling myself when he it's the third inning and he hands it off today. Just I remember just thinking to myself, I've done this thousands of times. Just relax. But I remember that not really working that well. <laughs> but that's what I tried to tell myself. It's like, you know, you've, you've been doing this for years. You'll be fine. And then uh, still, though, was a was a little nervous in that first game. What was different when you got the call from the Mariners um, in 2011 to, uh, to be oh, part that of was, theirs? Uh, that felt more like uh, the real deal uh, <laughs> because, well, first off, it was a paying gig instead of uh, – instead of being a volunteer situation, it was uh, more legitimized to me uh, in terms of it coming from the Mariners director of broadcasting, Randy, Randy Adamak. Uh, and uh, to get that call and go to a major league game on the Mariners flagship, for, you know, when I've been with our triple A team for years at that point and uh, doing games with Rick Riz, who is just a master uh, and having a chance to sit with him, that, that was a whole different uh, situation. And, uh, at that point, any bits of nervousness were gone, uh, and Rick is uh, off the mic. He is one of the kindest people you'll ever meet, and uh, he, he calmed any ner- nerves I may have had <laughs> prior to that first uh, big league game with, on the Mariners Network, and everything went really smoothly there. What is different just for, you know, I mean, I've never called a, a major league baseball game or, a, you know, a professional sporting event. Um, when you walk into an arena in a venue like that versus what you're used to every day, what are the things that struck you most as a broadcaster and the things that um, you kind of, you know, it's like they always tell minor leaguers when they get promoted, you know, don't look up. Um, what do you do as a broadcaster when you when you walk up to the major league level for the first time? Um, the things that, that really struck me right out of the gate were uh, how much easier everything is uh, and I'm not talking about the Expo situation. I'm talking about the Mariners sure. and you know they're being on you know being on their flagship is how much easier everything is because of all the help you get, but how much uh, more focus there is on the actual calling of every aspect of the game. Because when when I do AAA games, uh, I do everything right. I walk in, I set up the equipment, I do all nine innings by myself. Uh, I'm talking to the studio engineer. I do all my prep for the broadcast, uh, you know, game notes uh, in AAA baseball. They're a lot better than they were 10 years ago, but still you need to have a whole lot of information uh, yourself that you've, you've, that you've walked into the ballpark with. Uh, basically your own notes for the broadcast. You can't rely on the game notes. Uh, in, in the major leagues, you walk in and I've got Rick Riz who's going to do six of the nine innings, so I only have to do three innings. There's actually a guy there who is paid to set up the equipment and engineer the broadcast and talk to the studio. I don't have to do any of that. Uh, There are extensive game notes giving me all this information on the players and how they're doing recently. And even though I've already done all my own preparation, this is all here as a backup. And there might even be more things in there that I didn't even, you know, there's more information there. There's, There's more information they could possibly consume in a major league game prior to the broadcast. And then, uh, I only have to do three innings. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is unbelievable. And but the the key is though that you know those innings that you do are extremely important. You know that's what you're being judged on. And you know in in a AAA game, it can be ten to two in the eighth inning, and your mind's wandering a bit, and you're looking at the you're looking well, you're watching the Mariners game on TV out of the corner of your eye, and you're just kind of. Uh, maybe walking through the last couple of innings of the game there in a major league game, you can never do that. You just have to be completely focused at all times. And the, uh, the increase of the focus was, uh, it it, it can be a little alarming because it, you know, in in a triple a game, it's, you know, it's especially if we're on the road, it's not on, you know, it's not on TV. I'm only on the radio. So if I miss a pitch, because I'm looking at, uh, looking up a stat or something online, you just drop a high ball one or whatever. But in a major league game, that is not an option. You have to be just laser focused at all times. That being said, uh, what's good baseball on the radio to you? 
when it's done right? What What's good baseball? Uh, good baseball on the radio to me is uh, conversational, occasionally funny. Uh, good chemistry between the two announcers is, uh, well, that's more of a TV thing, but that, that's really important and uh, it does come up in radio sometimes. Um, and, and, you know, details on the games, but I also like a lot of uh, information on what's going on uh, around baseball that day. Like, not you know, you have to focus on the game you're doing, but I also want to hear if uh, something, something happened in the majors in another city you know, within the last hour, that's uh, a good story. I want to hear about that too. So uh, I, I like to know, you know, uh, what's happening around the league, and uh, you know, if there are any eventful things that happened. Like just yesterday, this Juan Soto kid on the Nationals <laughs> hit a home run in a suspended game that uh, was dated back to prior to his major league debut, which is just kind of a silly baseball thing. But you know, I, I want to hear about that while I'm listening to the Mariners game because. And you know that's a good chance also to mix some humor into the broadcast. So that that's a type that's the type of thing where I think is uh, you know a good radio broadcast would include uh, you know news of the day around the sport. How do you have a conversational and and humorous tone to what you do, uh, particularly when you work alone um, and knowing exactly what tone to hit? Um, because what might be conversational and funny to you. Um, when you're talking to yourself, there's no one, there's no immediate feedback or no immediate response from somebody sitting next to you. Uh, that person is on the radio in their car somewhere. Um, yeah. What's the way that you, you, you shape that in your, in your approach? You have to trust your own personality on that. They, I, I was told long ago to, uh, you know, be yourself on the air and, you know, let your personality show through. And I've, you know, now I've been in Tacoma for 20 years, so I think our listeners kind of know when I'm uh, – they know a little bit at least of my personality on the air and when I'm being silly or uh, being facetious, they get it. And when, when I find things that are, you know, that are funny to talk about in minor league baseball, there's a never-ending supply. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, – you know, they, they, they get where I'm coming from on it. I do have a bad habit of laughing at my own jokes that I've been trying to – shake for 25 years and it's hard <laughs> but uh at any point at any rate uh it's you just have to trust you trust yourself and let your personality shine through i'm, I'm a firm believer in that yeah and I, I do it too all the time and i'll listen back to something and be like stop laughing like just no um sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but yeah it all depends in the uh in the instance yeah um what's yeah, uh what's your book look like well, I use the uh, Bob Carpenter scorebook, which is anyone could buy from his website. It's designed for baseball announcers. It's got almost, I think it's got 180 pages, maybe 200 pages for major leaguers. Uh, so you can have all the games in one book. Um, that's ma- basically the main reason I get it is because it uh, uh, has everything right there. So if you need to look up what happened on May 12th, you can just file backwards and find that game. Uh, you know, if something comes up that we need to re- reference a previous game, you have it immediately available. And he also has uh, on there room for your defensive chart, which uh, that was like the eye-opening moment for me when I was a co- when I went to college, going back to before when I went to went to uh, KALX in Berkeley and signed up in sports and got tips on uh, for you know first broadcasting a game. Well, you need to make a defensive chart, and I'm like, what? What's this? <laughs> You know, I'm 18. What's this? And the the you have to lay out uh, where the defensive players are on the diamond, uh, right above your scorecard. So when the offense is batting, you've got the defense lined up right there, so you can glance down and look and see which player is playing which position in case you forget. And it was like this light bulb went on in my head. Oh, okay. And so uh, yeah, the Carpenter book has a little map for that, so you can fill that in, uh, and that's. Uh, really important and he also has uh rooms to put in all the bench players just to have them written down there for you uh or so that you you know you can access that right away which is particularly important in the bullpens these days with in triple a they go to the bullpen a lot and you need eventually you're going to need to see how many relievers are left and who are they so uh just having that available there a lot of guys like to fill in all the stats in the uh on the scorecard you know, like in the lineup section, they'll put in the batting average, uh, homers, RBIs, and maybe some additional things there. I don't do that personally. I uh, I get the 
stats from the you know the team stats that are released in the press box, and I mark them all up, and then I just tape them down on the counter in front of me, so I reference them there instead of on the scorebook. But that uh, uh, but I do like that Bob Carpenter book. Uh, I used to make my own scorebook when I was in A ball, uh, just because I thought that anything you could buy was uh, too small. I needed bigger squares, and uh, and I hated I hated the one with the diamond in the background that you Hate could it. always buy. Yeah, so I uh, just couldn't work with that. So. Uh, <laughs> So I made my own scorebook, and then I learned about the Bob Carpenter book, and it had everything I was looking for. And I was like, hey, this is great. I don't have to make my own scorebook anymore. So I switched to that. People always say that, like, you should be able to call a game if you had no prep time. Like, sometimes, not that it's a, something you should practice, but, like, it's a good exercise yeah. to, like, do a game with minimal prep because it forces you to really describe things. But if you were um, doing a game and you didn't have time to prepare, what is the one thing that you most need to know um, and most need to feel equipped with um, to to sit down and, and do a good job and feel comfortable with, with no prep time. You're saying? Well, no, or or not a lot. Well, okay. Um, I'm going to kind of go off the rail a little bit on this. My goal, and I try to do all my prep before I even go to the park. So, and I have a sheet that I make every day with all the. Uh, hitters for each team and hitting streaks and stats that might be pertinent. And I handwrite this, what they did yesterday. I've got notes from around the league and around the Mariners farm system and a list of possible subjects to talk about, uh, that I might use during the game. And if I walk into the park without that sheet, I feel naked. There was a time where I left it at my house sitting on my desk a couple of years ago. And I realized this at like five 15, I will go to dig out my sheet and it's a seven o'clock game and my sheet's not there. And I'm like, wait a second, what am I going to do now? And I just had to just get in the car, race home, go get my sheet and come back. So I don't know if I could call a game without it. I'd feel, uh, I'd feel naked, but uh, I think you, but get back to your original point. uh, It is an intriguing idea to call a game with zero prep and to walk in and just basically describe everything that you're seeing. And that's it. And all you've got is the lineup card that was handed out by the press box. That would be a, that would be kind of surreal and fun, and uh, I think it would uh, be a real test of the play-by-play skills, I'll tell you that. Well, I mean, let's talk about that a little bit, just from a, a play-by-play standpoint. Uh, from a description standpoint, uh, what's most important to you to paint? Um, how descriptive and, and, and of what do you like to be um, when you sit down to do a game? I try to uh, be descriptive of uh, balls that are hit, where they're hit on the field, Um I don't, uh, you know, early in the game, I'll explain, you know, I'll describe the uniforms the teams are wearing and the weather and all that, but you get away from it. You can't just constantly go back to that over the course of a nine inning game. So uh, I do get, uh, I do try to describe, uh, you know, uh, accurately where balls are hit on the field. And, you know, now our games are uh, simulcast. Our home games are simulcast on MILB TV. So there are replays that are being played. And so while I'm doing radio and TV, theoretically, at the same time, when they're playing, showing the replay on the screen, that's when I'll kind of do a do-over and, re, you know, uh, try to really describe the defensive play. Uh, or, you know, that Yeah, it's just too. And so for the radio listeners, it's like a redescription of what just happened with more details. But for the TV listeners, it's like I'm basically narrating a highlight. So uh, (laughs) it's uh, that's kind of a unique situation that comes up. But uh, I try to stay on top of that. Uh, I don't get too into uh, describing uh, what's happening in the stands, which is kind of unique because I have a I have a an 89-year-old partner who does Sunday home games for a couple innings with me. His name's Bob Robertson. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame as a broadcaster, oh, yeah. and he lives in Tacoma. And uh, he is—he did Tacoma games for many years, dating back as early as 1960, if you can believe that. And uh, he'll come in and do a couple innings on Sundays. And hearing his style, uh, which is from another era, is uh, is. is fun and it's uh, unique the things that he focused on when he was just doing radio uh you know he carefully describes foul balls bouncing around in the stands and the fan who gets it you know and, and that type of thing and i'm i'm usually more like you know and that ball's fouled into the seats on the first base side two and two and then i go back to whatever i was talking about and 
and from from his era it's it's a whole different uh you know they, they really tried to paint the picture of uh the ballpark in a really colorful way that's interesting when you and, and and it's interesting in doing this podcast too and kind of the the way that some people of different eras will will describe things that way um and and approach things that way too um yeah. and and how how particular they are um with things like that um, before I let you go, cause I know I got to get you, uh, off to the ballpark here today, but I wanted to ask you one, uh, one story related thing. Um, and this goes back to, uh, it might've been before your time in Tacoma or right when your time in Tacoma was starting. Um, but can you tell me about the 1998 world series and, uh, being in a booth with John Miller and, and I know, uh, you've talked about the intimidating factor of that, uh, what it was like to be there in the world series with, with someone like him. Yeah, that was Padres Yankees, nineteen ninety eight. I was in uh, A ball. Uh, that was my third and final year with the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes, who at that time were the Padres uh, Class A affiliate, and located very close to San Diego, a less than two hour drive. So, uh, I built a relationship with their PR guy, who at the time was Glenn Geffner, who is now a Marlins broadcaster. But uh, he uh, was very world. helpful. Yeah, he was very helpful to my career at that time. And uh, he was running this PR department, and the Padres kept winning, and he was getting uh, kind of overwhelmed, and he needed help. So I was doing nothing, and he brought me in in October and uh, helped out. helped him out in his PR department handling requests and stuff, uh, just being an extra body. And that was for free, but during the games, he would get me these stat jobs that were paying uh, jobs for ESPN radio or whoever was doing the, the playoff game. So I did stats uh, sitting in the booth uh, during the division series and the championship series. Uh, I recall Charlie Steiner doing a lot of those games and uh, Kevin Kennedy. And then we get to the world series. The Padres make the world series. It's unbelievable. And uh, they're playing the Yankees in the world series. And uh, the first two games are in New York, and then they come home, and Glenn gets me set up with the ESPN guy to do stats for ESPN Radio. And now it's uh, John Miller and Joe Morgan, Sunday Night Baseball crew forever. They're doing ESPN Radio for the World Series. And I'm sitting in there with these guys, and that was uh, kind of an unbelievable experience. It's game three. It's an hour before game three, and – Charlie Sheen walks in to come say hello to John Miller. And John Miller asks him if he still has the Bill Buckner baseball, and Charlie Sheen nods. You know, and it's, <laughs> it's just kind of a surreal moment. Uh, and then I'm supposed to be handing these slips of paper with information on them to, to John Miller. And, you know, I've been doing this during the division series, and it's been fun. You know, I'm researching things and looking things up, and Charlie Steiner's using some of it and not using other parts. You know, it's very normal. Uh, and then it, now it's John Miller, and there's there's literally nothing I can hand him that he doesn't already know. Uh, it's just silly for me, some A-ball guy, to be trying to feed information to John Miller about the two teams in the World Series that he doesn't. There's nothing he doesn't know about this, and uh, it was really intimidating. I was there was there was nothing I could do to help their broadcast because Miller was so good and so prepared that uh, it, it was just uh, kind of overwhelming. And he did this almost everything uh, from memory. He had very few notes written in front of him, and his scorebook was one of those little Baseball Writers Association of America books that they hand out at the beginning of the season, and there's hardly room to write anything on it, and he's calling the World Series using that scorebook and his memory, and that was a, it was, it was a really uh, shocking to see that he had so few tools in front of him and was so amazingly good on the air. Did you learn anything that day? that was applicable that you, you felt like you could pull um, to become better yourself just from being in that osmosis environment? I learned that I'll never be as good as John Miller. <laughs> and that turned out to be true. <laughs> and uh, I learned that. Um, I, I actually learned, uh, uh, well, you know, I don't know if I ever. I don't know if I learned anything to help me uh, with actually becoming a better broadcaster than that. Other than from that, other than yeah, I guess it just pounded in that pounded into my brain something I already knew, which is that you have to continue reading and learning about the game uh, away from the field 
all the time because it was really obvious that John Miller uh, reads about baseball and baseball history all the time and has a photographic memory for it. And uh, but you know he he, he uh, it's just clear that he just does that all the time because he's just so prepared when he walks in the booth and he doesn't need any notes. And he can bring up facts from World Series history that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, just whenever he wants to. And that, that just comes from reading a whole lot about it, I would imagine. So I, I learned that the, the study never ends, I guess. Fair enough. Um, I think that's a good place to end it, Mike. Uh, where can people find you on uh, social media and like if they wanted to, uh, to reach out or if they want to uh, this summer listen to a, a Rainier's game? Where can they, uh, where can they catch you? Uh, the Rainier's radio is on 8.50 a.m. in the Tacoma area and streams online through the Rainier's website, TacomaRainier's.com. And then I have a Twitter account that I'm very active on, at Curto World, which uh, I don't know why that's my address, but it is. It's my last name, C-U-R-T-O World. And on there I tweet about Tacoma Rainier's uh, baseball, and I also tweet all my latest silly jokes. So, uh, yeah. Blog has got a good Find name, too, there. doesn't it? Uh yeah, well, that's right. I have a Rainier's blog that's on the Rainier's website. Uh, I call it the Booth blog. It's got some long drawn out name that someone else wrote. But uh, anyway, you can find that through the Rainier's website at TacomaRainiers.com. It's just daily information on what's going on with the Rainier's and around the Pacific Coast League. All right, that's Mike Curto joining us here on PXPCast at Curto World on Twitter and uh, the blog. I love the name Booth Justice and the American Pastime. Truth, justice, the American way. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it. I like punny. I'm a, I'm a punny guy. I like it. Um, and I, I love the, the anecdotes of looking back, how we ended that with John Miller. Um, one of the cool things we do on this podcast is talking about uh, what we do as broadcasters and what we see as broadcasters. And that includes what we see other people do as broadcasters. Um, and it, it's neat to kind of see his perspective as a, as a young radio guy in this industry being around the likes of John Miller and kind of his soaking that up and his perspectives on what that was like um, and maybe a little bit of how that shaped him uh, as he continued his career uh, up to where he is right now at uh, AAA Tacoma uh, Mariners affiliate. Triple A Tacoma Rainiers. All right. Uh, many thanks to Mike Curto for joining us here this week on the pod. Next week, Dan Horde will join us. Had a chance to sit down with Dan, uh, the reigning Ohio Broadcaster of the Year at the uh, NSMA Media Awards Weekend. NSMA Media Awards Weekend. State Awards Weekend. The Awards Weekend. Um, a couple of weeks ago down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, so Dan's conversation comes up uh, with us next week. Until then, we say so long. This is PXPCast. The music is Marshmallow. He doesn't know we're using it. Don't tell him, because we don't pay for the rights. My name is Joel Gadet, and we are out. See you next Friday.